If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Didn't get the script in time. Stomp and Tom Craig on the board today. So we had two wills, and now and, and now we only got uh, one will and a Tom, and now we got two Toms. It, it just it's amazing how uh, they just procreate right in front of us. Uh, great to have you aboard, Tom, and uh, you know feel free anything you need, uh, just uh, put it on the tab. All right, we've got a, a strong show coming up, and uh, Tom on the board, obviously spitting the Simon and Garfunkel from 1970. It was on this day in 1970 that Simon and Garfunkel, the album Bridge Over Troubled Watered, uh, Water, or Watered Down, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water is released, and the title track simultaneously uh, issued as a single. Now, how does Cecilia factor into this, Scott? Well, the duo thought, meaning Simon and Garfunkel, that uh, Cecilia should be the first single, but their label uh, boss, Clive Davis, he's a little, uh, you know, he became, uh, insisted that the uh, title track, which was nearly five-minute uh, ballad with gospel textures, obviously the right call with uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, which was also a massive hit. Uh, both the album, the single, shoot to number one and stay there forever. Ten weeks at the top spot and the single staying there for six weeks. They sweep the Grammy Award the following year, winning for Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Song of the Year. There you go. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel on this day in 1970, releasing Bridge Over Troubled Water. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do it. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word. And don't forget Hammerhead Trivia coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. Interesting uh, poll question on X today. And, you know, I was joking yesterday because I think Brantford was going down to play Niagara Wave on the way by. Good luck. Good luck, boys. Um, But the poll question of the day, as Brantford moves ahead with plans to build a new sports and entertainment center, uh, do you think it will convince the Bulldogs to stay there? Drum roll, please. Uh, 85% saying yes at this point. Uh, that is the ongoing poll question of the day today on X. And uh, you can weigh in. Uh, yesterday, should children be out of school during the solar eclipse that will happen April 8th? This perhaps shows what a divided country we are. Uh, 46% saying yes, uh, no, uh, 54% saying no. So almost even, Stephen, but still, uh, yeah. All right, uh, we've got a, uh, we're, we're going to talk about risky play today. Oh, there you go. All right, so uh, anyway, feel free to weigh in on those on X and tell us uh, what the situation is. But if you as you hear more and more chatter about an arena in Brantford and, you know, it, they just happen to be doing well at this point too, uh, the team that 
is, and they're certainly not having any problem showing interest up there. So I could easily seeing them uh, looking at this as an opportunity and, you know, um, growth on both the team's part and, of course, the city. So, you know, is it too late for Hamilton? Not sure. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure where that discussion is going to go, but certainly uh, it hasn't been the warmest of relationships between the team and the city for whatever reason. Uh, but at the end of the day, it seems that uh, Brantford is uh, getting ready to roll out the red carpet. We'll see what happens moving forward with all of that. All right. So uh, as we look through the show, uh, we got another strong one coming up and you hope you hang around for it. Uh, the province has put a moratorium on public-private uh, partnerships for college uh, colleges. We're going to talk about this with Colin DeMello coming up uh, just in, in a few minutes, uh, as a matter of fact. They're rolling out a measure, uh, a suite of measures to protect students and improve the integrity of Ontario's post-secondary education, says the Toronto Star. Uh, While stopping short for the moment of committing directly to uh, more funds for the area, days after the federal government imposed a new cap on the number of international students to be admitted into Canada, the Ontario government said Friday it will impose a moratorium on new public-private college partnerships. The area has seen the fastest growth in international uh, enrollment in years, in recent years. And this is literally right after the pandemic. Like, boom, 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 boom. And uh, the numbers last year and the year before and the year before have just creeped up as, you know, somebody's found a way to make money. And, And basically, these partnerships allow graduates from these private colleges to receive public college credentials and the coveted post-graduation work permit and are sanctioned by the Ontario government have become a growing source of concern when it comes to the quality of education delivered by some of the private partners. So this isn't the big colleges. These are, you know, haircutting places and what have you. And it's really been sold as a, uh, a step to citizenship. So you know, it's really one of those things where um, uh, if you open the door, people will take advantage of it. So you've got to make sure you've got somebody on the door to watch what's going on. Uh, anyway, some of the things they're talking about, instituting more o- oversight for the approval process for all post-secondary international student programs, integrating enforcement efforts across ministries to strengthen oversight of career colleges and ensuring timely responses uh, to concerns and complaints, and requiring all colleges and universities to have a guarantee that housing options are available for incoming international students. So uh, obviously something that uh, that is something that a lot of people have been concerned about because the reason that the Prime Minister put the cap on uh, international students in the first place was because of the housing crisis that we're in. And at the same time, running parallel to that crisis is the one that is in healthcare, as we are seeing ER departments fill up again, uh, something we were going to fix post-pandemic. And for the most part, started to make improvements and then whooshed. Uh, the floodgates open and there's lots of people looking for health care that, uh, you know, that simply don't have family doctors, thus uh, creating more stress within the healthcare system, which was already hobbling along in a post-pandemic environment. So we'll talk about that coming up also this hour. And we're going to bring in Dr. Kerry Bowman, speaking of pandemic, because we talked to him a lot during this. Uh, he's a teacher of ethics at the University of Toronto. And the estate of George Carlin has filed a lawsuit against a media company behind a fake four-hour-long comedy special that uh, uses artificial intelligence to recreate the late, uh, the late stand-up comic style and material. So fascinating stuff. Is it live or is it Memorex? Uh, we'll wait and find out. 
we certainly know the situation in regard to uh, housing and 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 healthcare, and, and of course Canada's uh, expanding population. As a result of that, the federal government capping international students, reducing the targets by about thirty five percent, and capping that for the next couple of years uh, to hopefully ease the strain it has put on housing. And of course, with this something like this, there is rippling effects all the way uh, down the line to the point where uh, it obviously hits the provinces. And uh, also, with this influx that we've seen, it uh, it certainly has created a situation where uh, some uh, organizations, companies, what have you, taking advantage of people and this situation. To get an update on all of this and the province's response, Colin DeMello with his Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for having me. So, Colin, obviously we know the situation around um, uh, the increase in international students and how there's now a cap on that, as I mentioned, rippling effects through that. What has the province announced here? Yeah, so the province is, you know, taking a bit of a half measure here. This is not the full response that the sector is necessarily looking for, because there are a lot of questions about exactly what the government uh, could be or should be doing to you know, f- facilitate the income, uh, the, the incoming international students. So what they're saying here is that they're trying to crack down on the problem at large, um, looking at these, you know, publicly supported uh, colleges and the private institutions that they have uh, agreements with, right? Some colleges have these, uh, you know, private schools that they uh, work with that will run some of their programs. And a lot of these are satellite programs. So if you're a Northern Ontario college, you might have a satellite program in Toronto. And those satellite programs sometimes have a lot of international students uh, who, who do come in. Colleges use international students, universities use international students really as a way to make up their deficits, right? If they are losing money from tuition, losing money from a lack of provincial support. They brought in more international students because you can charge them much more than on uh, an Ontario student. So what the province is saying is that going forward, it wants to either cease or limit the number of these new public college private partnerships that will be approved by the provincial government. They're also going to take a look at the existing private partnerships that these 24 colleges might have and see whether there is quality there. They're actually getting something for their um, uh, for, for their dollar, whether the international students are actually paying for a program that is actually enriching their education or or whatnot. And then, then the province is also saying that, you know, it it essentially wants to look at all of the programs offered by all of the post-secondary institutions and see whether there is some benefits to the Ontario economy coming out of that, right? So these programs, if there's a lot of international students coming into these programs for universities and colleges, the province is saying, well, are these programs that deal with the the healthcare industry, the trades industries, or are these just liberal arts programs or something that, you know, might not necessarily be a benefit to the Ontario economy? That's the, the broad strokes of what the government is announcing today. Is it important here, Colin, to separate um, Ontario colleges and universities from what they're calling student puppy mills? What is that? Yeah, I mean, so so these are, dudes. Uh, you got to look at the system as three different categories, right? You've got universities, you've got colleges yeah. that have these 
partnerships with private uh, institutions as well. A- and then you've got uh, public, uh, private career colleges. And those career colleges right. are sometimes what could be the ones that have those, these fly-by-night mini operations that aren't necessarily uh, right. you know, providing the educational value that the international students think they're getting when they're actually coming here. But listen, colleges as well, you know, have a whole slew of international students that come in. In fact, yeah. um, there was one report last year that found that colleges in this province, 31% of their revenue comes from international students and, and less comes from domestic students. So there is a, a heavy reliance in international students for colleges, a, a, a lesser so, but a reliance nevertheless for universities on international students. And it's all because they're saying they're lacking the funding that they need from the province. So how and what's the tie in with housing as well, Colin? Is a, re- a relationship to housing on this, too? Yeah, listen, I mean, a lot of international students who are coming in, there's been a lot of concern about, you know, the more international students who come in, the more housing you need. That adds a lot of uh, pressure to the, the the rental market. So the province is saying, well, you know, we, we might want to affix these international student targets to housing, right? Making sure that universities or college campuses are actually building housing for yeah. international students so that they're not forced to, A, go into the general rental market and B, you, you know, not inadvertently causing more pressure for everyone else on the the rent and the cost of of living and housing, et cetera. So they're they're saying they want to tie this. But keep in mind, we haven't seen a lot of detail from the Ford government just yet. These are some broad strokes, and they're saying that they're going to come back with more information. But the universities and colleges say there is immediate pressure as a result of what the federal government has done. So to give you some uh, a sense of what's happening, the federal government enacted this cap on Monday, and universities and colleges are telling me that international students who were approved to come here to programs in Ontario, they are now being told, uh, sorry, your application is kind of stuck in limbo, because... In order for those international students to come, the provinces have to give a letter of attestation to the federal government to say, yes, we approve that international student to come. That mechanism hasn't been set up in Ontario just yet. And so all of these institutions, universities and colleges are saying, well, wait a second. We're relying on these international students to come in with all of their thousands or millions of dollars in tuition. And now none of them can get in the country. And they're just saying, well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a chaotic system right now. And they're all worried, frankly, about their, about their bottom lines. Colin DeMello with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Thank you so much, Colin. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, this is kind of odd. And it's not funny. It's funny because it's, it's, it's almost so funny. It's scary. Or maybe the other way around. But we've talked to Dr. Kerry Bowman uh, a lot on this show in regard to ethics and such. But really, uh, a lot of it started in, during around the pandemic and such and in different, uh, different ethical discussions uh, that society was dealing with. This is a completely different angle. So I'm fascinated to hear his response. The estate of George Carlin has filed a lawsuit against against a media company for a uh, behind a fake uh, comedy special that uses artificial intelligence to recreate, um, you know, a stand up version of George Carlin as if he was alive today. 
and then doing a, a, a new stand-up, per se. And obviously, uh, that's raised some eyebrows, especially at George Carlin's estate and his daughter involved in um, in, in a lawsuit and, and wondering, I guess, what is going on moving forward or whether, uh, well, I'll wait and let Carrie update us. Dr. Carrie Bowman with us, teaches about ethics and artificial intelligence, professor with the School of Environment with the University of Toronto and here now. Carrie, thanks for the time. Fascinating discussion. Yes, it really, really is. And, you know, this this is what it's coming down to. It's the 21st century rolls along. Um, you know, this is really the first time in, in, in human history where we're being fed aspects of, of human culture that aren't actually human produced. And, and I must say, just right off the top, I, I really do commend the estate and his, his daughter, who fortunately is, is, is clever and focused and um, for standing up to this, because I do think it's very, very wrong. Um, you know, this is a real person. He may be deceased. Um, it, it, it was, past tense, up to him to create his material over the course of, you know, a lot of years. He's gone. Um, and, you know, if we look at what the content of the show would be, it would be his reaction uh, to things that are occurring in society after his death. Well, hmm. that's really unfair. That's really, really unfair. So, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, one of the real problems is we just don't have the kind of legal architecture at this point to figure this stuff out. And and how they would actually do it, they're talking about algorithms over all of his, uh, you know, of which there's massive amounts of recordings of his, his incredible work yeah. over the course of a lifetime. And then they would create it from that. You know, whether that's actually fully true or it's a couple of writers that did most of it, I couldn't say. I don't know. But, um, you know, throughout the arts and, and throughout culture and even physical art, paintings and things are increasingly being created by artificial intelligence. And sometimes they evoke, you know, very strong reactions in people, both positive and negative. Are people likely to care less about this, Carrie, simply because it's an entertainer as opposed to a life and death situation? But it is the same thing. It is. An entertainer or not, you know, whether it was Van Gogh or, or whether it's George Carlin, and some people don't take entertainers very seriously, but but the principle remains the same. It, it's really, really unfair. Now, imagine if he didn't have this good daughter and, and a strong estate to stand up for it. And, you know, for now, I think what we need is ethical reactions to this. Um, also, you know, I, I'm going to say something sounding a bit cynical, but it does sound like a cash in to me. You know, let's yeah. let's just do that. You know, we've got, you know, what what group doesn't have a tribute band? I mean, what famous group doesn't have a tribute band? Yeah. So is it the same thing? It's not really the same thing, though. There's something very different about it. But we need more protection. I'll, I'll be eager to see how this how the courts uh, work this through. Uh, my guess is she will win. She meaning the estate of her father, her deceased father, George Carlin. And I, and I think that should be the case. But this is only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, soon, you know, there's already concert where, you know, images will be holographic and things like that, where the person will be standing in front of you performing. Uh, that is what's next. And a lot of this is going to have to be figured out as to how this is going to be done. You know, let each of us imagine after we're dead and gone, having our image entertaining a room full of people like it's pretty hmm. creepy. 
Uh, what concerns you most about this is the fact that you're speaking from the grave that, it, you know, it's not a case of, of watching somebody else's work. It's watching somebody create that image or sorry, have that image and then create new work. So what is that what scares you most about this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the importance of intellectual property that a person's working yeah. life, their career, their creativity really, really should be protected and, and can't be continued on after their death because something or someone, and I purposely is making that up, there's also a complete lack of consent for this. You know, I guess theoretically, yeah, yeah. if somebody, you know, probably like George Carlin's been gone. Well, more than 10 years, if I remember well. Um, so it wouldn't be possible. But could you consent to this? Could you say, I don't care what people do, you know, let me entertain for 100 years and I don't care who does it. I, I can't imagine that. But but at least that's some element of consent. But that's not what's going on here at all. You bring up a very fascinating angle to this, Carrie. What if you're an entertainer now? You're writing up your will for you know the next ten years, the rest of your life, your final will and document, and somebody throws this at you and says, "So, do you want to keep doing it?" Yeah, let's keep rocking with that because it could well, theoretically you know, be it, theoretically it could be a revenue generator. Well, it could. And if you've got a bunch of children that need revenue, you could say, let's keep it going, right? And feed it all to my kids, right? But, but you know, we're really out on a limb with that one. But, but at least there'd be an element of consent to that. And would there be some parameters about that? But what I would say is, you know, AI, and I'm not against AI. I think we've had this conversation before. I think mm -hmm. it's got some real benefits for all of us. But it is out there on every website gobbling up people's artistic ideas, people's writing, people's concepts. It is just day by day absorbing more and more uh, human production. And, and it's all being merged together and spewed out. And we're really losing track of it. We really need some parameters. And Canada, you know, we're talking about it, but we've got we've really got to figure out what we're going to do with a lot of this because it's moving quite fast. And at the end of the day, Carrie, won't something like a copyright lawsuit uh, bring this to attention and certainly to the courts and then a ruling and a precedence and then yeah, you do it, you'll get sued. <laughs> You absolutely would. But here's the thing. So like, if AI, uh, you know, decides that George Carlin was a wonderful entertainer and never uses his name and just creates a new physical image. And, you, you know, you've seen the images yourself, probably, and people listening have that, you know, you're looking at human faces of people that don't exist, by the way. Right. You've probably mm. seen that. Um, and so you could create a whole new comedian and they could be yeah. based on George Carlin and you'd never know it. Different voice, different this, different that. But, you know, so so much of this is very, very complex stuff in terms of intellectual property. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, teaches ethics, artificial intelligence, professor with the School of Environment uh, in University of Toronto, talking about the estate of George Carlin, uh, filing a lawsuit against a company that has made a fake uh, special with the former uh, or long past uh, comedian and, um, and and now has to, well, we'll see where it goes from a lawsuit, uh, lawsuit perspective. Kerry, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Very welcome. Take care. The Staircase Theatre is having its, uh, well, uh, re-reopening. 
Why not? A re-reopening is happening Saturday, 7.30. The lounge will be open from 7 to midnight, Thursday through Sunday nights. Drinks, cocktails, light snacks on the menu. Uh, hoping to get the word out who people uh, to people who may have forgotten all about them and to talk more about all of this. Matthew Serena with us of Hub & Hammer Event Planning and now the Staircase Theater, 27 Dundurn, uh, Dundurn Street North in Hamilton in here now. Matthew, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing great, Scott. How are you doing? So far, so good. So tell us about the re-reopening and maybe the story before the re-reopening. What's the journey been like for the staircase? So uh, we took over managing the event space back in 2022. Um, uh, Relay Coffee Roasters was running the food and drink menu inside the main cafe. Uh, As of October of 2023, they had decided to the building so we have fully taken over the cafe and we are running the building all as one entity very cool so so to to some that may not know tell it give us a little bit of a backstory to this building and the history so the the staircase has always been uh pretty much an arts incubator we've got you know improv workshops twice a week film festivals screenings baby showers uh comedy shows it's definitely a multi-purpose building with multiple rooms you can rent out for your shows and events. And each room has got a very different vibe to it that kind of lends itself well to the creative arts community. How has it, how has life been for the staircase post pandemic? Obviously, we know you know during what has happened. How how is there a new vision, a new shape for this? It's definitely been a bumpy road to kind of have one vision. I think that now that everything is being done under the staircase's name. We have a better shot of kind of reaching new communities and giving people a chance to try things like stand up and improv and, you know, music lessons. And really, I think the world needs the arts now more than ever, given the last, you know, two or three to you know almost four years now. Hmm. So I think that the big difference is we're ready to encompass the whole building in pushing the arts forward in Hamilton. So obviously a arts hub and event space, you're talking about expanding where, uh, you know, uh, as far as uh, using the venue and for what, uh, what are some of the visions there? What, what can you see this? What would be this? What would the staircase be perfect for? Uh, It's really perfect for uh, intimate events as well as, uh, shows where you want to rent a theater up, but you don't quite, you have an idea, but you don't quite have the funds for it. We kind of make sure that our pricing is affordable, working with artists and bookers to fit their vision. Like our theater seats 63 people. That's like kind of a perfect size to not intimidate yourself into renting a much larger theater until you're ready. So it's definitely like for me personally, my first shows were here, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And it kind of, for better or worse, shaped me into who I am because it just, showed me that pursuing the arts is a very possible uh, option. Talk about the state of live entertainment, um, generally and, and especially in the city. I mean, the city's obviously you know, been a hub for music and, 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 and the arts and such. W- what is the state of live, uh, of live events now? Because, you know, sometimes it seems to go in, in cycles and waves where sometimes, you know, even with music clubs, you'll see a few, then they die, and then the, another one's come around, or different visions or versions of them. Where do you see the state of, of that industry now? It's definitely, I think people are clamoring for entertainment big time right now, but finding places that carry it, it's getting harder and harder. We lost so many great venues 
you know, during the pandemic, after pandemic, some even pre-pandemic. So I think that it's all about just finding cool places that kind of you might not have heard of before. It's just connecting those with the people who are looking. Do you think in a post-pandemic world, people want to be reconnected with each other in, in whatever it is, just be out in a group and watch it or, or be a part of it? Absolutely. I think that's why our improv classes had a really big boost because the pandemic taught everyone that there's still time to go after what you love and take chances. And it just, it, it, it takes a moment of kind of, um, how do I put this? It, it takes a moment of, you know, things being a question mark to make you really question what it is you want to do and what you want to try and check things off your bucket list. So what's happening this uh, uh, Saturday regarding the re-reopening? What have you got going on? This Saturday, uh, from 7.30 onwards, we are giving tours of the building. We're going to have Alfie Smith performing some live music. Uh, we're going to be debuting our new hot dog menu. We've got some light snacks. We're going to try and get some improv shows going. And because the room has got the building has got so many rooms, we're going to show everyone around and you know get people ready for what we got coming up in the future. All right, Matthew Serena with us of the Hub of Hub of the Hammer Event Planning. Now the Staircase Theater, 27 Dundurn Street North. Re-reopening Saturday night and check it out. See what it is all about. Matthew, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck. Always a pleasure, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, you may have uh, seen the images of a fire at J.C. Beamer Park uh, earlier on in the week, uh, an, another encampment, encampment situation. We've talked to Adam Oldfield about this before, who's uh, in the hood, and he joins us now. Adam Oldfield, president of Acumen Duck Cleaning in Hamilton, part-time Mohawk professor. You also hear him on Tech Talk with Rick Zamprin. Good morning, Hamilton, every Friday, but here speaking as a concerned citizen. Adam, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. I am, Scott. Great to be back with you. This is, uh, I must admit, um, uh, obviously the, the images, which we've seen of the fire and such, uh, concerning, and you've been on this show talking about that and your concerns for the encampments as well. But what I found fascinating was your letter and your approach. And correct me if I'm wrong, um, but how did you decide to go after the city's insurance company? Well, if you're not going to get an action from the council and the answers you get when they do respond is we're dealing with it. Um, I felt with my neighbors in the neighborhood that we were, you know, the one that's going to hurt the most is when damages are caused is the insurance company that underwrites the city when damages take place. So in September, I thought, you know, we would take the approach to say. This is something of which you may or may not be aware, and I'm referring to the letter I wrote to the insurance company to comment that this is exactly what's happening. We've co- we've shared all of the communications and the narrative of what the problems that we see and how we we understand it needs to be addressed. Um, and we're only following what we know is legally allowed, and we were getting nothing. And I hate to say this uh, openly here, Scott, but I was we were getting lip service from our ward mm-hmm. representative, and and really not. 
nothing from the mayor's office, to be clear. And so, you know, uh, the lip service we were receiving was, uh, we understand you have a problem, but we're going to address it in our own ways. And truthfully, we felt that we were being completely neglected. So the insurance approach was what we, which we started back in September. And then from that, we ended up, I didn't, I didn't hear anything back. And then this action, which you just referred to, took place this past week, which I'm only like three houses down from that park, that flame mm. and the explosion, um, you know, with all the action that's going on in the world. I was wondering, we all wondered what happened. Yeah. Is there a gun going off? And yeah. um, so I'm approaching the insurance company, letting them know that there's if they're going to insure the city, maybe they should be aware that they're not trying to mitigate their damages. Wow, um, that, that's a, a great approach, but again, just reeks of the how desperate uh, people are for help here. What um, any response from the insurance company, or what's the city's take on you doing this? Well, the city's not saying too much. Um, and the insurance side of things, uh, we have received a note to say thank you. In fact, I, I want to say that our first letter did actually spawn the security. That was uh, in, uh, assisted, as we understand it. The 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 I, I can't speak for what was dialogue between the insurance and the city itself, but there was security that were uh, applied or put into the park. Um, and and following that, with the <laughs> with security in the park, uh, one of my my dear neighbors um, walks her dog every day through the park, and uh, and as such was approached and was. I'm going to say attacked, truthfully attacked with a two by four um, for mm. disturbing one of the encampments, which she had on camera. And we and again, we're submitting it. So I hate to say this in a general form is we're in conversations. I can see that the insurance is maybe putting a bit of pressure on the city to say, you know, like these are these are issues. We you know, we might want to be aware of this. And uh, and following that, we, we were also commenting that the dialogues and the information that we're gathering, I hate to say the evidence, but the evidence of which we are preparing basically when the time actually comes that a home a citizen a family or even a child is injured or hurt in our community there will be enough uh warnings that we'll be able to bring to the city and and again nobody wants i don't want to sue the city i love the city i, I don't want to take yeah. it down in, in any capacity of a, of a legal or litigation uh, manner um but i will not hesitate under the actions of which we constantly throw warnings that they're not doing anything uh, as a resident, you see what's going on. You're there. It's happening right in front of you. Um, do you have any opinion on what the city should be doing differently? Well, I mean, I've I've made a few recommendations in the past of where and how uh, it should be addressed. But I mean, right now, I can honestly say uh, I'm, this unfortunate circumstance that took place, um, the park is clean and it's been removed of obviously because of the damage and, and otherwise yeah. it's been it's been clean. There's there's no encampments currently in the park, uh, probably for different reasons of other than, you know, there was a fire the other couple of days right. doesn't mean it won't come back. The only thing I would say that I would like to enforce that they do follow their protocols and stick to ensuring that they they follow their own uh, procedures. Wow. Uh, do you expect to hear uh, back from the city on this? Do you think this, uh, because let's be honest, if you're an insurance company and you see, you know, that footage in a, in a public park that you're insuring, that's got to raise a red flag or two. 
Well, I'm sure it raises a flag and the fact that I backed it up with a ton of uh, correspondence and evidence to say, here's what I've warned, here's what I wrote, and here's what I've done in the past. You know, this is what you're underwriting when the claim comes in. Um, To answer your question from the city, yes, I do. I think I, I I mean, I submitted a letter as actually I shared with with yourself and uh, and I'm willing to bet I'm going to go boilerplate response advising that we're we're taking into advisement your concerns. Um, In fact, I'll even write it for them. Thank you for your interest. Mr. Oldfield, uh, your your concerns are deeply in, empowering us as we continue <laughs> to make a difference in the community and as we w- strive to make a better f- the community for all the Hamiltonians. We will take this under advisement. I don't know what they're going to write, Scott, but you know what? There you go. There's your boilerplate. I could pretty much uh, accept it. Again, when the time comes, like I said, if someone gets truthfully injured or a property is damaged, and we know for a fact and we have the evidence piling up behind it. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to be that that guy in Hamilton that claims he loves the city, but then he actually sues it. Uh, I don't want to be that guy, but I am stating it openly that I will be that guy if it does come to matters. So, you know, if we're worrying about $60 million bike lanes, maybe there's another attention that we might want to look at where we put our revenue and resources into mental health programs and assisting in making sure that we help find a solution to the problems that continuously fire up. Adam Oldfield, president of Cleaning, part-time Mohawk prof. You can hear him, Tech Talk, Rick Zamperin. Good morning, Hamilton. And now, uh, as a resident, speaking of the concerns in and around Beamer Park. Adam, good luck. Keep us posted. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Crime doesn't fly here. That's the new initiative at John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport to further strengthen prevention of crimes that can take place at airports, such as smuggling of drugs, illegal weapons, contraband, tobacco, vehicle, property theft, and human trafficking. And to talk more about all of this, Colleen Ryan is with us, Associate Director, Marketing, Communications, and Customer Experience with John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport. And he here now. Colleen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you so much. I hope you are as well, Scott. Thanks so much, Colleen. You know, it, when you think of airports, when you think of flying around and, and, and what the business of the airport is, did you ever think you would be starting initiatives in and around crime, such as crime doesn't fly here? Uh, is that relatively new? I, I, I guess because you deal with borders and such, customs, uh, that the, the you're always dealing with this, but it, it seems like a, a sign of the times campaign. Yeah, sure. I think, uh, you know, the campaign came to be with Toronto Crime Stoppers initially. And, you know, their intent was to call some attention to some of those activities that you highlighted off the top there that are known to take place in, in airports across the country. Things like smuggling drugs, illegal weapons, contraband, vehicle property theft, human trafficking, all of those things that happen all of the time. Um, and, you know, in an airport like Hamilton International, we're the third largest cargo airport in the country, the largest overnight express cargo airport. So a lot of goods move through uh, the airport. And, you know, we also operate a lot of international and transborder flights as well as domestic flights. So we're moving hundreds of people and boxes and, and bags every single day. So, it, you know, it's a little bit of a byproduct there of that. Uh, with Hamilton being, a, you know, and obviously it's a passenger airport as well, but but really a cargo hub and one of the major ones in the country, as as you said, is there more emphasis on this sort of thing? Um, you know, because you have such a high cargo load. Yes, 
Yeah, so at the airport, the airport's highly regulated as it is, and we take safety and security of our facilities very seriously. So there's lots that we do uh, all day, every day to prevent criminal activity in and around the airport. Um, this partnership with Hamilton uh, Police Service and Crime Stoppers is another layer on top of that. You know, we're, we're aware that we have you know, 4,700 jobs across the airport amongst multiple companies and industries and employers. And many of these employees have access to restricted areas. They have direct line of sight over those daily operations, regular interactions with other airport partners, passengers, public. Um, And we all play a role, uh, a critical part in making sure that the airport remains safe and secure. So we have inherent kind of features inside the airport, inside of, uh, you know, how we report to one another. But then also we have a, a very great relationship and longstanding with Hamilton Police Service. And now with this new uh, initiative with Crime Stoppers, it's just another layer and a way that people can report something that they might see or that they're, they're uh, concerned about in an anonymous way if they want that option as well. Uh, before we get to the program, Colleen, uh, I'm just thinking of a story I saw this week where uh, obviously we've heard an awful lot about the increase in vehicle theft around, you know, the Golden Horseshoe, around the whole greater Toronto Hamilton area. And, you know, like uh, 250 cars found in containers in South Italy, uh, destined for uh, the Middle East. When you hear or see stories like that, you know, how, how does it relate to what you're doing and, and keeping ahead of this game? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we're part of a strategic transportation corridor. So, you know, for us, our emphasis is on that air cargo, but we connect to intermodal um, highways and, and so on. And so there's always an overlap and a connection. But I think for us, we, we're really focused on ensuring that we keep the airport safe and that the operations that we're operating are at kind of with standards of safety and security. Uh, and with that, that helps create a safer community in and around Hamilton. All right. So tell us about this program uh, with Crime Stoppers and Hamilton Police. Yeah, so we, uh, Hamilton Police and uh, Crime Stoppers approached the airport last year. They wanted to build on the uh, initiative that was originally developed by Toronto Crime Stoppers, who had implemented it with their employees at uh, Pearson Airport. But the intent was always to have it scalable and implemented at other airports of all sizes across the country. So I believe Hamilton is the second airport to uh, to implement it. So for us, it's it's a, one of several employee-focused initiatives that we've put in place to help mitigate those crimes and related activities that take place in airports. Um, we've all already delivered training to our team specifically related to human trafficking, and now this builds on that. So the intent is to just raise awareness about the types of activities that happen here, give employees, um, our own team, the opportunity kind of to understand what to look for, what to do when you see it, and what your options are for reporting. And we're looking to also then expand it to all of those partners. You know, we have those 4,700 jobs around all of the airports. So we want to expand it to some of those key partners. And we're going to build on that. You know, the official launch is the start of that process. And we're going to initiate discussions with all of those partners uh, to provide information through partner uh, displays, as well as presentations and public safety announcements to continue to enhance the safety at the airport. Will uh, traveling customers notice any difference, notice anything? Yeah, we'll have some posters around the airport for sure. So they might see some of that, um, you know, kind of you see something, say something. If it looks suspicious, it probably is. So they'll see some of that messaging in the way of posters. But as for their travel journey, it won't impact anything for them. This is really more of an employee initiative uh, and that of our partners to catch everything and kind of keep their eyes open as they go about their jobs day to day. How much of your time is spent dealing or and whether it's yours personally or, or the airport dealing with this sort of thing, as opposed to making sure planes are on time, making sure that, you know, whatever you have to do just to run an airport? 
yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes into running an airport every day, Scott, and it is part of the uh, practices mm. we have. We have an operational team, we have a full operations center, and a security team. And you know, part of their job every single day is to do exactly that to maintain the safety and the security of the airport. Um, on many different fronts. So this is just one part of that. There's lots that they they watch for and look for to make sure that everything is operating on time, everything is safe from whether that's a plane landing or or these types of activities. How important is it that everybody works together on this? And it sounds cliche, but, you know, we often hear various departments not, you know, talking to the other, so on and so forth, whether, you know, it's one airport, another or, or border or government or what have you. How important is it that we keep these com- lines of communication open? It is hugely important. We all have a role to play in keeping our community safe and keeping our airport uh, safe and secure as well. We do look, which is exactly what we're trying to expand this to all of our partners and to the many people that operate across our airport, because it takes a lot of people to keep an airport moving and to keep everything operational. And we all have kind of line of sight to the activities that happen day in and day out. So we believe it's hugely important. We always ask uh, that everybody, if they see something, they do say something. And is this program running now? Any changes uh, coming to it that you see in the expansion of it? Yeah, so it is going to be expanded. So we're, we just launched it um, in 2023 with our own team here at the airport. Uh, the official launch that took place this week was kind of that initial introduction to our tenant partners. So we invited a lot of them to come join us in uh, the airport terminal building to learn a little bit more about it. And now we're going to follow that up with some direct communications and conversations some presentations, sharing some more materials and information, and hopefully facilitating those introductions between some of our partners and Hamilton Police Service and Crime Stoppers of Hamilton directly. Crime doesn't fly here. That's a new initiative at John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport to strengthen uh, prevention of crimes that can take place at airports. Colleen Ryan with us, Associate Director of Marketing, Communications and Customer Experience with John C. Monroe International Airport. Colleen, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. All right, we've been talking about this for a while, and of course, in the news this week, uh, five members of Canada's 2018 ju- uh, World Junior Hockey Team uh, were told to surrender themselves to police in London to face sexual assault, uh, assault charges in a high-profile case that has embroiled the sport's governing body in controversy. And to talk more about all of this, Taylor McKee, Assistant Professor, Brock University, Department of Sport Management, researching the interplay between violence, masculinity, media, and Canadian sport. Taylor, thanks for the time time. Hope you're well. Thanks so much for having me. So what are your thoughts, Taylor, when you hear the announcement that uh, these five members have been asked to surrender? Well, it's certainly highly unusual the way this is all played out. And again, I'll be careful not to mention any specific names because again, of course, this is again, we don't know for sure who is going to actually show up uh, in London, but certainly the way in which this scandal has played out going back to the summer of 2021, even, I mean, this has been uh, a very, very, very ugly, ugly, ugly thing, not just for the sport, for, for I think for anyone in, in Canada who's, who's learned about this. And the most recent development, I think, casts the most amount of doubt in terms of the NHL's involvement in this uh, this whole situation as well. That's worth noting only four of those players are NHL players. But the seemingly forethought that, that went into this, the amount of knowledge that NHL clubs seem to have about these legal proceedings uh, prior to their charges even being filed is highly unusual. And these players seem seemingly disappearing from their clubs days in advance. I mean, suggests that NHL clubs knew uh, a heck of a lot more than the rest of the public did, which casts a lot of doubt about the transparency of this entire process. And essentially, this is a, a big, big, big mess. Uh, do you see the NHL being dragged into this? 
Well, truthfully, I mean, this this situation came on the shores of Hockey Canada, you know, a couple summers back, and and the people involved there paid for it with their positions. I mean, there was a turnover there. There was blood was spilled over this issue. Now, the National Hockey League was always tangentially related to this story, for sure. But if they're being dragged into it, it's because they have done such an absolutely categorically poor job handling this. We've heard about an internal NHL investigation that was being launched into this situation. We've heard about it now for literally years. It was supposed to hand it out. It was supposed to be completed before the Stanley Cup was was given out, before the draft, before the start of the season. And yet here we are, here we sit with no internal investigation completed and criminal charges, which is, of course, separate from any internal investigation uh, being handed out. And the investigation still hasn't apparently been concluded or released to the public. I mean, this is precisely the opposite of, of transparency and something that they pledged uh, to be transparent about when it first uh, came to their front door. You talked about the way that this has played out, Taylor. Why is this coming out now? Why has why have these charges been laid now? Again, I think it's important to note that you know, being no statute of limitations in Canada on sexual assault charges, the the, ge- the gears of justice turn slowly a lot of the time, yeah. slower than we we would want, right? And what is a normal part of the process on the criminal side of things? I can't really speak to you. I'm not a crown prosecutor, but I can tell you that it is possible that. These things take time on the criminal side of things, longer than they than they should. It is unusual that the London police first look at this and then shut the book and then had to open it again, seemingly under mm-hmm. arrest from the public. I mean, that speaks to, I think, how, how flawed this process can be for victims uh, in this situation. But at the same token, the timing of the criminal charges, I think, is not something that I think a lot of us know much about, not knowing the evidence in front of us. But we do know that it's unlikely that new information was going to be uncovered on the NHL's investigation of this, these events. So what is the holdup? What, what is taking so long? And for the NHL clubs themselves to be essentially in unison issuing these statements of, of leaves of absences, smacks of collusion in, in, in a way that is deeply disturbing and, and again raises questions about how much individual clubs have known about what was going on from the legal side of things than, than it would be in any other employment situation that you could possibly imagine. What about the fact, Taylor, that this case has already been settled uh, civilly, that it was, you know, that uh, a decision was made and, and a settlement, a payment was made? How does that factor into this? I think, you know, the, the courts would say that that's fantastic from a civil point of view and damages were awarded and damages were awarded. That's great. But the Crown yeah. reserved the right to charge criminally at any time. And if they believe that there were criminal charges and maybe evidence was handled poorly or you know, investigation wasn't done properly, they can do this at any time that they wish. And, and any one of us would want that to be the case had this be you know, something that relates to, to, to us personally. What we would not what would not be normal is even in the case of a civil case that had been settled and no damages awarded, what would be unusual is for your employer to sort of know about criminal charges that were coming your way uh, before you would and before the world would. That is seemingly, I mean, again, I'm not being a criminal attorney myself, but, you know, that seems highly unusual, especially if it were to be a professional sports franchise that seemed to have a prior knowledge of charges being filed in a, in a specific jurisdiction of a Canadian uh, police station. That is Really, really, really very strange. And then also, for the amount of time, the leeway we're talking about here, we had a London Police Department is scheduled a press conference well in advance of, of for what, they won't say. But, of course, so this is, again, for an organization that Hockey Canada has spoken about, you know, transparency, transparency, and transparency. And again, as I noted, that they paid for it with their positions. I mean, this lesson clearly was not learned by the NHL here because this has been... It's the stuff of, of of mob trials you'll see here in terms of the, the, the level of secrecy and the seemingly coordinated nature of of, um, of people surrendering to, to charges in a police station. I only got a few seconds left, Taylor. Will you, do you think we'll see changes? Will this move anything with having these uh, charges now? 
I think that you're going to see a lot of people getting very, very, very upset in terms of the, the, the way, the speed at which this was held. But in terms of the overall culture, that's going to take decades. And hopefully, we're, we've already turned a page, hopefully, with Hockey Canada. Hopefully, the same will come with professional sports shortly thereafter. Taylor McKee with us, Assistant Professor, Brock University, Department of Sport Management, talking about five members of Canada's 2018 World Junior Team uh, asked to surrender themselves to London Police. Taylor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Can the Prime Minister, can Trudeau win in 2025? I don't think so. As the window closes on replacing Trudeau, my gut and my polling tells me he isn't the leader for the times, says David Coletto. Uh, let's ask him now. David Coletto, CEO of Abacus Data. And here now, David, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Happy Friday, Scott. Back at you. I want to ask you about your last point in that sentence, uh, not right for the times. What do you mean? Well, look, I've been tracking public opinion in Canada for almost 20 years, and and I feel that over the last year and a half, the mindset of the country generally has moved to one of what I call scarcity. Um, Things in their life uh, that they need and they want are harder to get, more expensive, um, and, and are at a minimum, whether that's healthcare, housing, food, energy, you name it. And so when Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015, um, we were coming out of, you know, almost a decade of Stephen Harper. He was, you know, um, charismatic. He was of a new generation. He was and very much a celebrity, right? People who, mm-hmm. who very felt that he was not like them. He didn't need to be in touch with how they felt, didn't need to understand because people were looking for something, I think, greater and kind of extraordinary. And so he rode that desire for change from Stephen Harper and and a very different um, kind of person. You fast forward to today, and all of those things about Justin Trudeau are true. Um, He still is extraordinary. He still is a celebrity. He's still the guy, I think it was a bad decision, who goes on vacation at, you know, $9,000 a night um, resorts (laughs) in Jamaica and does it despite the fact that back home, Canadians are struggling with high uh, costs of everything and, and an economy that they don't feel is really working for them. And so what are they looking for now? I don't think they're looking for Justin Trudeau. And I made it very clear in my piece. I said, I, it's not that I don't think the Liberals could win in 2025. It was I don't think Justin Trudeau as leader of the Liberals could win in 2025. And that's the basis for it, is that the, that the public mindset is looking for a different type of leader today. Um, uh, I, I think one of the reasons Canadians are frustrated is they feel he just doesn't relate to them. He doesn't get it. And in a recent article in the star, the prime minister said, there's a lot of people who are just rightly grumpy at the world right now. Uh, is that proof he's missing the point? Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't describe it as grumpy, right? Because when I ask Canadians, what's keeping you up at night? They repeatedly say it's, it's the cost of living. It's, it's housing. It's affordability. It's it's not just grumpy. Grumpy is what you are yeah. when, you know, you, you you you're late for an appointment or the movie has too many um, trailers at the front of it when you're at the movie theater, right? Yeah. Canadians are feeling anxious. They're feeling frustrated. They feel like the more they work, the less they get. And and when we ask people, do you think the prime minister Justin Trudeau understands what life is like for you and people like you? Only one in five Canadians say either definitely yes or I think so, and so few say definitely. So that, you, that, 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 that nature of being in touch and, and empathetic 
I think is, is completely missing. And that art, that in that interview was, I think a proof point of it. Yeah. Do you think that, um, uh, uh, that, that, because of the situation they're in now, I mean, the polls are continuing to show it, it doesn't look good. The runway is shrinking for a new leader and such. You alluded that, you know, it's not so much the party, it's the leader. Um, at what point does he see that for the best of the party that he should sit, uh, step down in order to give them enough runway? Is he thinking about that at all? Are those numbers presented to him? Yeah, it's a, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I've not spoken to him. I don't know what he's thinking. But I think at some point, and this is the challenge the Liberal Party faces, and including the Prime Minister, is that we know, and he knows, and the party knows the known risk around Trudeau. Everybody knows who he is. We know who likes him. We know who doesn't like him. We know it's hard to change people's opinion. What we don't know is how Canadians would re- react to any of his alternatives, hmm. because most of them are not household names at all. Most of them, most people, I would say 80 to 90 percent of people couldn't pick out of a lineup and say, oh, that's the minister of foreign affairs or the minister of industry or former bank uh, governor of, of the Bank of, of Bank of Canada. So that's the problem is the unknown of what change comes next. And there is a there's just as likely that the liberals could completely collapse with a new leader. And so I think would that be much would that be much different, though, David, than where it's projected to be anyway? I mean, and that would be my point for a leader. Yeah, that's what I say. I would if I was a liberal and I would be looking at the scenario, I would say, I know we're headed to defeat. And I also know that if Justin Trudeau announced he was resigning tomorrow morning and was not going to run in the next election, I do believe there would be a deep sigh and sense of relief across the country. That then they could, the country could at least get to this next question, which is okay. So what's next? Let's talk think, about the future. Do you think you would see it, it, it immediately reflected in the polls if it was to, and if he was announced to say over this weekend that he is stepping down? Do you think that would change the reaction uh, of of the public uh, in polls, like say within the next week or so after I think that? What you'd see is like uh, the number of people who say undecided might go up. I don't think yeah. the liberals automatically see a bounce because people would still say, okay, well, who's going to be the next leader? Right. But when we ask people, if Justin Trudeau wasn't the leader of the liberal party, would you be more or less likely to vote for him? But one in four Canadians, including one in four people who say they'd vote conservative today, say, I might be more likely. I'm, I'm at least somewhat more likely to consider voting liberal. So to me, that's that there's, a, there's an open-mindedness that people aren't completely shutting doors to the liberal party, but they've shut the door to the idea that Justin Trudeau is is their best, uh, is, is anything they consider voting for. David Coletto with us, CEO of Abacus Data, and talking about uh, the re-election, uh, the re-election options, or if there are any, for uh, the Prime Minister. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Happy weekend. Uh, we had Dove Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, on the other day, and largely it was to talk about uh, the uh, the judge ruling that the Emergencies Act uh, was unconstitutional and uh, was unreasonable, was unjustified, was not needed, and such. And we were talking about that case, and 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 Dove was giving his comments and such, but said what he was really concerned about um, was the actual ethics commissioner 
himself, the interim ethics commissioner, uh, who Duff feels and Democracy Watch feels that uh, they've done one of the worst jobs of enforcing records of, uh, uh, of, of actually doing something after only a few months on the job, that there's like been about eight different issues that they've sort of swept under the table as opposed to actually uh, doing something about. So uh, forget the events and what the ethics commissioner is discussing and trying to resolve. Uh, there's questions about his credibility and uh, the way that uh, he was uh, appointed and, and, and how he got to where he is. Uh, doesn't, are we going to get tough? Uh, so, um, again, uh, the concern was, was that, uh, th- this, uh, th- this interim ethics commissioner was, uh, too close, had uh, ties too close to, uh, the federal liberal government and that, uh, th- that basically their job was to kind of calm things down, smooth the waters, uh, nothing to see here and move on as opposed to actually, um, looking at what was going on. Uh, again, in regard to, uh, Trudeau's vacation was another issue that, uh, had come up when initially the prime minister's office said that, uh, the vacation was going to be paid for by the Trudeau family. And then once they're down there and people are, because people follow the prime minister, uh, once down there, uh, they realize that, uh, and where he's staying, they reissue a statement clarifying it, which really wasn't clarifying. It was completely changing the story that now he was not paying for it, that it was going to be free. And then of course the ethical situation arises where, you know, here's the leader of a country accepting free gifts from people. This person who owns this resort also seems to be a contributor to the Trudeau foundation as well. So you can see where the questions uh, uh, lie. But again, what Duff and, and Democracy Watch were concerned about is the actual interim ethics commissioner and whether they were doing the job. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, is here now. Duff, thanks for taking the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you. Sorry for so, that delay. That's okay, Duff. So we were talking last time, and, and you kept coming back to the fact that the actual interim ethics commissioner wasn't doing a good job. Forget the issues of the day that we were discussing. I wanted to give you more time to elaborate on that. And obviously, uh, Democracy Watch has done some work there. So why do you think, or, or what are your concerns about this interim ethics commissioner? Well, he testified in September that he had eight uh, matters before him, complaints involving 11 people. And then he testified again in October for the House Ethics Committee and said they're gone. He's cleared them all. Um, two of the complaints were complaints Democracy Watch had filed, and um, including about Trudeau choosing his old family friend David Johnston to investigate Trudeau's actions on foreign interference which was a clear conflict of interest. And he's buried all of these eight complaints. He's also weakened the ethics rules in three serious ways. The most important is he's saying it's okay for cabinet staff and top government officials to own $60,000 worth of shares in businesses that they make decisions about, which will allow them to profit from their own decisions. So, those things uh, together, he has one of the worst records that I've seen in the last 20 years from an ethics commissioner across Canada. He's only been on the job for five months. He seems like he was handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet to uh, weaken the ethics standards and that they finally found the lapdog that they've been seeking for this position who will roll over every time and clear whatever they do, no matter how clearly unethical it is. 
Uh, give us some more uh, history of the interim ethics commissioner. And is it interim? Is he going to stay on? His uh, six-month term is uh, up at the end of February. It's renewable. The cabinet doesn't have to uh, consult with opposition parties when doing these six-month terms, which is why Trudeau's using them, because he can handpick, as he did. He handpicked Conrad von Finkenstein as the interim ethics commissioner in secret in a partisan political cabinet-controlled process. And it's very dangerous. You can't allow the ruling party to choose its own watchdogs. And what does Conrad von Finkenstein know? Well, if I want to keep this job beyond six months, I better please the prime minister because he decides whether I get to be renewed for another six-month term. The opposition mm-hmm. parties have to do everything they can to stop him from being reappointed for a six-month term, let alone, even worse, if he was appointed for seven years as ethics commissioner. Because in just five months, He has a record of a negligently bad lapdog. So imagine if that continues for seven years, how many unethical activities, uh, you know, officials personally profiting from decisions that they make and other really unethical actions will be uh, allowed as well. If he continues gutting the rules, then, you know, everything will be allowed and you'll just have uh, essentially legalized corruption. So this guy has to be stopped before he does more damage. Do we need to change the way we pick an ethics commissioner? Because clearly there's lack of credibility here. We need to change the way we pick every watchdog over good government, everyone who enforces any law, including judges. They are all partisan, political, cabinet-controlled processes. At the provincial level, uh, political parties choose in many of the provinces, including Ontario, choose judges through a process that is too political and cabinet controlled and partisan control under the control of the ruling party, federally the same. Uh, and, And in terms of the watchdogs over our democracy, yeah, the cabinet gets to choose them all in secret and, and can essentially choose lapdogs. So, um, it's a really dangerous system to having a fair law enforcement, especially laws that apply to cabinet ministers. And uh, it really rigs the system against everyone and in favor of the ruling party. So we we have to change the system. Some provinces have. Quebec has a much more nonpartisan process for choosing judges. British Columbia, it's an all-party committee that chooses the watchdogs. That's still not good enough because a lot of the watch democracy laws apply to all politicians, whether they're government politicians or opposition politicians, it really should be taken out of the hands of politicians. You shouldn't be allowed to choose your own judge in any situation, uh, especially when you're a powerful politician. It's just really dangerous. Only got a few seconds left here, Dove. You talked about how this uh, current uh, interim ethics commissioner had eight cases on the docket, cleared them, and nothing to see here. Uh, that be, How do you clear them and not address them? Were they addressed? Uh, did that not raise a red flag? Everybody happy? Uh, okay, great. Eight done, uh, eight up, eight down. I mean, is there not a ruling in there somewhere? He says he can't disclose, uh, you know, two of the rulings were sent to us because we were the complainant. Um, presumably he's done the same for anyone who complained. He, he sent the letter in, sent them a letter with the ruling, but he says I can't disclose those letters or even a summary of them. It's not true. There's nothing in the law that prohibits him from issuing a summary of these eight cases. And there may be a couple of more that happened after October that he's ruled on. 
And uh, we need to have public rulings, at least a summary put out. You know, if you find someone not guilty, then don't name them. Just summarize that someone complained that an MP did this, and I found that that is within the rules. That's fine, but at least to have a, a summary come out, and there's nothing prohibiting him issuing a summary. So just another layer of secrecy and another layer of uh, unethical conflict of interest in this layer cake of really negligently bad enforcement and, and uh, unethical behavior from the ethics commissioner. So, uh, as I say, I hope the opposition parties will do their jobs they, and uh, get out there and, and grill him. He's appearing before the House Committee on Tuesday, the ethics commissioner is, and uh, he should be grilled on both his enforcement record and also the secrecy over his appointment process and, and whether he's going to be reappointed and and the Trudeau cabinet should be grilled on it as well because they just haven't disclosed anything. People had to apply for the job by last May 23rd, and the cabinet has said nothing about appointing mm -hmm. a new ethics commissioner to a seven-year term since then. I mean, Jeff Conacher with us. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. They are concerned uh, not so much about all the cases, but the actual interim ethics commissioner and his ability or inability to clear the cases, as uh, they say. Duff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Have a great weekend. You know, I think this is the first time we've had Viking music on the All Request Friday, but what do I know? Uh, it is 551. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Scott Radley coming in after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator when he's not wearing one of those hats with the horns on it. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am like a very chunky opera singer. With big braids wearing that horn thing on my head, yes. <laughs> big braids. I was wondering what you're going to say there. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I you know uh, what? That's uh, it's like the the um, Looney Tunes. Every card, every opera singer in Looney Tunes has to wear yes. the Viking horns. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, there's something clearly going on between uh, whenever we're sharing producers. There's some sort of musical challenge <laughs> so. uh, going on here that Daddy's the last to know about. <laughs> I and think it, so. it's like, can we play the crappiest, weirdest song we can when we go? into Gradley and that's I remember at one time it was just rush tunes now it's everything that is bizarre play that for Radley I, I think that's exactly I think you've nailed it exactly what's happening behind the scenes and neither of us have any control Scott all right I know this is radio but I'm going to do an impression you try to tell me who I am okay <laughs> yeah I know it's ready ready just so close your eyes everybody close your eyes Who am I? <laughs> you are either Sammy the Seal at SeaWorld applauding for a fish. Let or, me start. Maybe, I, you know, maybe that was right. Let me be more accurate. How's that? Yeah. I, I hope that people have seen this video. It, it is. I, I'm guessing that you are imitating our prime minister applauding at a women's hockey game. It is the strangest. Pe pe there is there are more memes and social media posts. Why is that, Scott? Why is that? Why is and we're all looking at it. We all roll our eyes. Why is this over the top? It's just so weird. Who claps like that? I mean, we all there is a there is a sort of a socially accepted, socially agreed upon technique for clapping. There's the golf clap. <laughs> right? If you're around the course where it's just a light tap of the hands. And there is the, you know, there's the we will rock you clap, which is, you know, on a rhythm. Yeah. And then boom, there's, boom. Yeah, but then there's the sports clap, which is generally like a, you know, just sort of a one rhythmic yeah. knot, but it's not, 
insanely fast where it looks like someone has either sped up the recording. Uh, that's what it looks like. Or you're on something, like you, you've been given a shot of epinephrine or something and you've just gone into hyperdrive. It, it's such a, if uh, people, some people don't know what we're talking about. Go look up the video. It's just, it's so. This is the prime minister at the Ottawa, uh, Ottawa. PW, yeah, yeah uh, uh, professional women's hockey league game. Yeah, they and don't he starts slow yet. and then he, he just kind of goes over the top. But I, to me, this is liberal strategy. This is liberal strategy. You see it every single news conference. It drives me nuts. And what will happen, it reminds me of the kid, in the, the loudest kid in the playground who's always trying to get everybody's attention. They're always doing something loud. And then as soon as they get everybody's attention, everybody realizes they got nothing to say and they just move on. And whenever the prime minister is speaking, everybody's behind them, whack, you know, nodding their heads as if they're all like pigeons in, in, in the park or, you know, those little dogs that we used to have in the back of your car window or such. And, you know, they, I, I really do believe, and I, I think we heard Catherine McKenna say this once, former minister, if you keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again and say it louder and louder and louder, that people will somehow understand or or or, or, uh, or or think that it's a different message in some way. And that's what we have here. Let's come out. Let's be loud. Let's do the stuff that we worked for us in the past. And it's just, it's falling flat. It, it, you mentioned about the people behind him in, in press conferences. You know, the other thing that came to mind. And, and Christy Freeland's the worst. Looks like her head's going to fall right off. Well, the, the other thing that came to mind when I saw this is it looks like the people in the crowd in North Korea when Kim Jong-un enters the room. <laughs> like you've got it. You want to be the one clapping exactly. loudest so your family gets food that day. Yeah, um, exactly. It, it's just, again, I would encourage people to go look if they haven't seen it. It's just, it's not, it's not. Like he didn't do anything illegal. It's no. just weird. It's just it's just another it's just another nobody, peer into his personality. Nobody his else on planet Earth claps like this, as I say, short of a seal at SeaWorld trying to get a fish from its trainer. I see him doing the same thing during a debate in the election campaign against Pierre Polyev. I, I, I just think he'll keep Starting hammering. clapping like this? I think, yeah, I, I think he used techniques like that where he'll, he'll just keep hammering and hammering and hammering and, and hoping that... Uh, see, I, th- know, I see the opposite. All form, no, all form, no substance. I see all the opposite. No I think... I think- Probably in the conservatives war room right now, they have got clips of this and this is going to show up (laughs) over and over and over in campaign ads about this guy. Like he's going to, it's going to be a bunch of stuff about things Trudeau said that didn't turn out to be accurate. And then like a clip of him going, (laughs) and then it's going to be something else. Like, it's he's just, a very he's he's proving to be a very unusual man. Certainly not identifying with the average Canadian. Uh, well, you know, maybe this will be taught in schools now. The Trudeau clap. We have, you know, we have we have the Fosbury flip, which was a high jump technique <laughs> that we learned how to do. And you've got you know figure skating routines named after and moves uh, named after figure skaters. Now it'll be the Trudeau clap. Uh, I was like speaking moistly. All right, we got to go. Tom's yelling at us. Uh, have a good show tonight and a great weekend, Scott. Thank you. Yes, clapping moistly. There you go. Have a good one. (laughs) All right. That's it for us. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks for listening. At 5.57, as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one comes from Evelyn. Question. From Evelyn via email. If the Prime Minister announced he was stepping down this weekend, would you be sad or happy? Keep right, accept the pass. 99.